0: I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I extend my respect to their elders past, present and emerging and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander listeners that we have joining us. Sovereignty has never been ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land.
1: Aboriginal people know what's best for Aboriginal people and I always like to remind people that I'm a facilitator to change. That's all I am. I'm not the change.
0: Kurt Herzog is an ex-professional swimmer who swam alongside Olympic legend Grant Hackett in the 2015 Australian World Championships. He's since given up life in the city to manage the Remote Pools Project, an organisation that delivers crucial aquatic education and resources to remote Indigenous communities he spent the last five years living in outback Australia with one short break. You may recognize Kurt from Brooke Blurton's season of The Bachelorette. This chat was one that personally really took me by surprise. I learned so much and felt really inspired to question my own values. A quick note from Kurt that the Remote Pools Project are looking for volunteers, so be sure to check out the show notes for more info there. Let's get into the chat. This is Life Chats, deep and meaningful conversations with friends and strangers. Thanks for making time and agreeing to do it. I know you're a little bit reluctant because you feel like maybe you don't have as much to share, but I think you do. So yeah, thank you.
1: Yeah, no, I've been real hesitant to do podcasts up until now, to be honest. Um,
0: Why is that?
1: uh, A few reasons, I think. My vocabulary and um, <laughs> the way that I talk and try to explain things can uh, isn't the best, but I'm working on it. But um, I just stand in English in high school, so um, that might explain a bit. But um, no, like I am also, I think I, I did a podcast before and talking about the topic of uh, working in a non-for-profit space for um, Indigenous peoples it's very kind of touchy and like in terms of I probably shouldn't be the one talking about it, but at the same time for, you know, where we're at, it's, it's I'm probably the only one to talk about it. Um,
0: yeah, like it is your work. It's true for what you, yeah. know, you do experience.
1: Yep, yep. But, um, yeah, just being, I guess, really conscious of that and um, trying to not come from a, a a perspective of being a white saviour uh, is really important, and you know because Aboriginal people know what's best for Aboriginal people, and um, I always like to remind people that I'm a facilitator for change. I, I, that's all I am. I'm not the change. I'm just, I'm just helping facilitate through my Western views um, and the way that I was brought up, and unfortunately, because aquatics are so heavily regulated Mm. um, uh, and there's so many, you know, work health, safety and whatnot, Um, that's, you know, part of our Western world. Um, We need people with that knowledge to um, be able to talk about where the boundaries are and what's, you know, a serious risk. and, And unfortunately, you know, there's been pools that have lost their pools because they haven't adhered to work health, safety, and the rules. So it's kind of like I'm a facilitator for trying to work with local Mm. communities to tell them where their boundaries are in terms of running these pools basically.
0: I'm so keen to get into that and hear a bit more. Um, But maybe let's like start from the very beginning. I want to hear about like what was young Kurt like? What did you kind of want to be when you were growing up? What were your dreams and how did you kind of see your life playing out?
1: Yeah, I suppose um, much of my youth self, um, I was very much into sports. Um, I have a twin brother. We were super competitive. Um, We love sports. So um, driven in a lot of different sports as a junior. Um, And then later on, probably when I was about 12 or 13, stuck to the sport of swimming. Um, Just had great coaches, um, great squads and yeah, really got invested in the sport and and loved training and going to swimming and and those early starts at five a.m. and I think having a twin brother at the time made that all a little bit more comfortable. Um,
0: I was just going to say, was he? So he was swimming as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, he was actually that, yeah. really good when we were younger. He was a lot better than me. He was national <laughs> champion at like twelve years old. Um, so it gave me to someone to kind of chase. Um, really, the perfect kind of pathway or. or Rather to have in order to um, feel comfortable in the sport and know and understand my potential. Like, here's my twin. Like, if he can do it, I can do it sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, just spent a lot of my youth, a lot of my teenage years swimming. I, you know, went to high school like everyone else. I grew up in northwest of Sydney in the Hills District um, in Castle Hill, so uh, a pretty, pretty pretty nice area. Um, you know, my family was never too well off. Um, but my dad's a really hard worker and so is my mum. And so they taught us basically, if we work hard, we can achieve some big things. And I kind of put that towards my life and, and my swimming career and didn't really have much of a social life in high school, didn't party too much, just really was just 120% in this swimming thing. And I wasn't even good when I was younger. I was, I was really shit. <laughs> I didn't make nationals until I was 16, 17 and 18, but always came, you know, second last. Um, and I look back at it now and I was 18 leaving school and I really wanted to to represent Australia, but I couldn't even make a semi-final. And it, like looking back on it, I think, damn, that was pretty wild. And I didn't actually get to... Um, get on the Australian team until I was 23. So spent much of my time between 18 and 23, just going to uni, working two jobs and training as hard as I can to achieve that dream. So yeah, to answer your question, just the majority of my youth was swimming (laughs) and funding it. And then also having a plan B at the same time. So.
0: Just on that. So I find it really interesting that you said, you know, you weren't even good at it. What was motivating you? If you were kind of not seeing the results and you were having to get up at four o'clock in the morning every day, what was, where was the drive coming from?
1: Uh, A few different reasons. Um, So I went through puberty super late. Um, I didn't start to go through puberty until I was in year 11. Um, So, you know, when I was 17, 18, I was versing these man-childs and I was, me and my (laughs) brother were skin and bone and we were not really keeping up, but kind of just there. And, you know, my dad's a big guy and we kind of knew that we had this growth phase coming and we're hanging out for that. So that was a bit of a motivation to keep going and wait until we hit that growth phase to get good. And that's where I got a lot of my improvement, my strength um, to, to swim faster. But I guess just having a twin brother and how competitive we were and how much we both enjoyed the process of going to training and training hard and training with a good bunch of mates and, um, having a really good coach that, uh, makes you believe that you are capable of making that team, um, was really important. So yeah, just, just all a combination of that. I think, um, self-belief, self-determination, I was, I was pretty driven and, um, I did, you know, did everything that I could to, to get there and slow and steadily I did. So
0: I'm so interested in, like, the athlete's mindset because a lot of uh, great trainers say that, you know, it can't be trained, that level of, like, drive and ambition um, mm. in your experience. Is that true?
1: Yes. Yes and no. It's, it's, it's a hard topic, I think, um, because I felt like I've, I've always had it. Um, I've seen some people make the Australian team based off pure talent, uh, especially mm. in their younger years. And, you know, they sort of get these little bursts of, of uh, um, hard work and resilience and perseverance and 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 that's when they swim their best but they kind of peel back and then go hard again and then mm. peel back and go hard. But it kind of works for them because they're not the type of person to be so on all the time where I was. Like, mm. you know, I'd finish a nationals and I'd go back straight into training the next day and I'd do, it you know, 20 sessions in a week where... Like that's, I feel like that's a different drive to compared to, to some people who, who need that absolute downtime um, and then, you know, have that shorter prep, but uh, for their mental side of things and their physical side, they just respond better. Um, mm. So I think having, I think drive comes in a few different forms and works for, differently for people, if that makes sense.
0: Totally. And you mentioned you wanted to have a plan B and you were at uni. What, what were you doing at the time?
1: Um, So I actually uh, enrolled in a business degree and I didn't even do business in high school. I think I just felt like I wanted to create something of my own Um, and I thought that doing a business degree degree would give me skills to to do that essentially. Um, It was broad. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left school. Um, Like I said, all I really wanted to do was swim, but I knew I had Mm. to have a plan B because, you know, you hear so many stories about people getting injured or missing teams or needing surgery or, you know, life events that have happened to them that have ended their careers. So my parents really drilled that into me from the get-go and, um, yeah, did a business degree and really loved it and actually transferred to another two different unis after that, went to train at AIS for a period of time and transferred to the University of Canberra with a sport manager's sport management degree and then finished up at ACPE with a sport management degree so um yeah ended up with a bachelor of um, sports management um which yeah. I used a little bit assuming my career swimming I guess still used today but um I don't know I think sometimes if I was to go back I don't know if I would have done a degree because now I've got like a 65,000 hex 10.
0: <laughs> <laughs> me and too, me like too. Like while I
1: could have <laughs> used it um and it's helped me to get jobs i don't really feel like i've kind of used the knowledge as, as to what i've learned mm. so um you know something for people out there thinking about doing uni i, I think in the business in the business world it's um, life experience i think i you know i've learned totally. everything that i've learned uh, throughout my roles just from working day to day rather than from the knowledge i've learned in the course so but you know i am glad i did it um, because it has helped me get to the jobs.
0: Um, Yeah, I find I've got a really similar experience. It's almost like you need to do the degree to prove to people that you have a sense of like discipline and you know how to learn and stick to something but the actual skills don't come from the degree. They come from then getting your foot in the door and learning on the job. Um, It's just frustrating that you need that piece of paper to be taken seriously because some people don't have the privilege or the luxury of of getting into a uni and, and funding it. So, yeah.
1: Exactly right. Exactly, put on.
0: So tell me, mm-hmm. you finally at twenty three, you make the Australian team. Talk me through that. What's the experience like? Was it what you thought it was going to be? And kind of run me through.
1: I suppose it it was what I thought it was going to be. You know, I fought so hard to get on to that team for so long. You know, prior to making that team, I think I missed four or five within a second um, before eventually getting there. So. For me to, to get on a team initially, I, you know, I still remember the swim. It was such a euphoric moment um, and it was more just a, a sense of personal achievement both for me and my coach and my family. Um, and then uh, for, for that year in 2015, we went to the World Championships in Russia and I was mm-hmm. part of the 4x200 freestyle relay team um, and I was on that team with Grant Hackett who had made his, his comeback. So that added to the whole experience. You know, I was I grew up watching this this guy and idolising him and to be on an Australian team with him and, and swimming with him on the same relay team um, in an international event was just so surreal. Um, so that really kind of catapulted the experience into just a forever memorable moment um, and then... Um, yeah, just, just had a ball at that meet. We ended up getting a bronze medal in that four by 200 freestyle relay. So to come a, away from an international meet with a, with a medal um, was, was, you know, I couldn't have asked for more. So um, the whole experience, yeah, unbelievable. You know, a lifelong dream I'd been chasing for over 12 years, really. Um, so, yeah, for it to all come together was a surreal experience and something I remember for a long, long time.
0: And what was it like afterwards? Do a lot of people kind of hit you with the like, what's next question or could you kind of did you really know what was going to happen after that?
1: Yeah, I suppose um swimming looks swimming and I think Olympic sports uh, in their own little bubble. It's it's you know, you, you you talk to you you talk to a lot of people probably that are in team sports and you know they have seasons and Um, you know, out of season and pre-season. Swimming's an all all year round thing. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got short course and then long course and then events and World Cups all around the world. Um, So the mindset with a lot of swimmers is, okay, I finished this meet, I'm going to give myself a week off and then I'm just going to get stuck into the prep. And I feel like most swimmers often think about what's next before they're even finishing Mm -hmm. that meet. It's just such this this intense bubble where you're constantly thinking of what's next, in, instead of appreciating, I guess, what you're going through. Mm. Um, you you might hear that through a lot of people when they talk uh, in their post-race interviews. Um, a lot of what frustrates me so much is that you someone will get a gold medal and they'll come out of the race and they say, "Oh well, I could have done a few things better," and I'm like, "You just won a bloody gold medal!" Like, <laughs> go crazy. Like, show some emotions. Like, thank people who just, like, yeah. talk it up. Like, be entertaining. Like, who cares? Like, you've achieved the end game. Um,
0: I was just going to say, did you get to celebrate your bronze medal? Was that something that you remember being in the moment, like, celebrating Yeah, that?
1: yeah. So, I was in the, I was a heat what was called a heat swimmer at the time. So, I, me and Haki had swum in the heats. And usually, that, so, they take a six, a group of six, um, that go and represent Australia in that 4x200 freestyle relay. And then the slowest four was from the heat swim because we've got so much depth in that event. Um, and then we progress to the final ranked first and then the slower two in that heat swim get knocked out. And then the faster two who are the fastest two in Australia get pulled in for the final. So it saves them and gives them a bit of energy. So yeah, me and Hackett got the slowest times. <laughs> so we're sitting in the grandstand, like just cheering our lungs out for this team on the sidelines. And um, yeah, that's my memory of it, being on the, on the mm-hmm. sidelines and just going absolutely wild, um, getting a bronze medal. Um, so yeah, did get to celebrate it. And um, I think for me, you know, I was really on the cusp for the team for a, a lot of years. And I probably knew deep down that I was never going to be on that individual two spot. So it enabled me to, I guess, celebrate a little bit more. Like I wasn't thinking about the future. I'm thinking, I was always thinking, you know, it's taken me this long to get it. It might not ever happen again. So mm. I knew in that moment that it was really special and, oh, yeah, I went berserk.
0: <laughs> Where was your brother while whilst all this was happening? Was he still swimming?
1: No, nah, no, nah, he's back at home, so... um <laughs> Yeah, in Sydney, probably watching on TV, but um, mm-hmm. with my family. So um, he kind of gave up probably a few years before that. Um, he got into the fitness scene at the time and get it started to get too big and um, started mm. sinking instead of being able to float. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he just went on a different path and um, was always super supportive. And, um, you know, I've always always make sure I thank him in, in any talk I do because, um, you know, I, I – I do strongly believe if it wasn't three, I wouldn't have got there, you know, the the useful tool of having a brother that achieves so so much great things as you're younger, especially being a twin, you know, being young boys, Mm. shows you what you're capable of and um, it just gave me a lot of confidence to to grow in the sport and and achieve what I did, so, yeah.
0: And when did you step away from swimming? I stepped
1: away uh, and. 18, it would have been. Um, I tried to come back. So I did a few World Cup meets and whatnot after that 2015 World Champs and I missed the 2016 Olympics by 0.2 of a second or something like that. Um, And that was a, a really hard time. I was carrying an injury throughout the whole next year leading into there and was on the surgery bed five days later and got my first shoulder surgery. Six months after that, got another shoulder surgery um, so I spent majority of that year in a sling, not being able to do much. I wasn't working. Um, I couldn't get to uni. I couldn't, I couldn't work because I had no arms. I was a lifeguard at the time. And mm. even though it was really difficult, um, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because like I, I talked a little bit about before, in that high-performance world, especially in these Olympic sports where they are all year round, you get so trapped in this bubble where you think that everything in life should revolve around swimming and, you know, coaches are constantly telling you you're, you're the best thing ever and your, your world just becomes this sport and there's all this fake sense of um, accomplishment or, or or you think that, you know, once you make it or achieve something great, you're going to get all this sponsorship and uh, all this reward and you're going to get these job opportunities where really there's there's none of that and and having that time away from the sport just kind of, uh, opened my eyes to the outside world and showed me for what it really was and I experienced many different things. I you know, went travelling a little bit. I just did things I wouldn't have done if I was swimming. So um, it was kind of like a bit of a blessing in disguise. I, I tried to come back off the back of that and was training in Sydney with a Korean fellow named Park Taewon um, who was like a Justin Bieber of Korea is the best way I can explain <laughs> He's he's a superstar billionaire or well, millionaire billionaire got a lot of money either way um, mm-hmm. and he just flew me all around the world um, training with him um, we trained the same distances and and strokes so um, trained with him over at Manly and did all that and then trained really well in the lead up to the Commonwealth Games in 2018 which was on the Gold Coast and unfortunately um, did something really stupid where I got into skateboarding and. Um, was (laughs) skateboarding when I was having my shoulder surgery because I like surfing. I love surfing, but I couldn't surf when I had my shoulder surgeries. So I got into skateboarding and particularly skating down big hills, like bombing big hills. It was so silly. And then one time before work, I was bombing this hill and come off. And this was three months out from Commonwealth Games Trials and I was swimming probably the best I ever had in my whole life. (laughs) And I come off and I just scorpion down this hill (laughs) and ripped my nipple off and had no <laughs> skin left on my palms. And I got up and I thought I'd broken my arm because I couldn't move my arm. And I got up and I noticed that my shoulder was kind of popped out and I mm. saw that it was dislocated. And so I've gone and walked to the gym and i absolutely covered in blood. It looked like I'd been hit by a car. And, and um, as I was walking in, my shoulder popped in. I moved around. I'm like, I'm sweet, I'm sweet. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I was just stressing that I've done something seriously wrong. And, was, you know, the adrenaline was obviously kicking in and um, got taken to hospital, was there for a couple of hours, getting gravel pulled out of me and got put in a sling. And then, yeah, a couple of weeks had passed and still hurting. month had passed, got some scans and, yeah, torn subscap and supraspinatus. needed another surgery to get back to swimming and that was the end. So that's how I finished my career. <laughs>
0: How do you feel like reflecting on that now um, that that was the way it ended? Uh,
1: to be honest, like I don't, I don't, it's funny, like it doesn't bother me. Like I think because I saw the the outside world and, and, you know, got a taste of everything else in life and um, I was really keen to venture into that and I was kind of oversuming but like just wanted to finish off with a home Commonwealth Games I guess and didn't get to do it but like, I don't know, weirdly I was just like, oh, I'm sweet with it. Like, it is what it is. I can't do anything about it. Like, there's no point of, you know, I was stupid. I was an idiot. But, you know, I guess... You can't change it. Yeah, lesson learned. Like, don't do dumb things when (laughs) you've got a greater plan or greater goal to do something else. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't dwell on things too much, eh?
0: That's good. It's a good way to be. Yeah. Um, Tell me... So, talk me through... You finished swimming and then how is it that you come to, you know... You're on national television, swimming, and then you are living in a town with, like, what, 100 people? Is that – how does that happen?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I suppose during that period after missing the Olympics in 2016, I I went through a really rough patch where I was down and out. Like, I was, you know, couldn't do anything. Like, I was doing some weird shit. I got tattoos on my legs that I hated. And, like, I was just going through this phase of, like, I don't know – Getting involved, an identity in the, crisis. Yeah, and getting involved in the wrong crowds and doing the wrong things and um, just bored and um, got, it got me real down. And a mate of mine just said, hey, just do some volunteer work to help me. Like you need to understand how privileged you are. You need to understand how well you've got it. Like stop being down in the dumps. Like, and I just, I guess at the time, you know, I'd, I'd represented Australia a year and a half ago, but I didn't really know who, I wanted to know who I was representing. I didn't know Australia that well. Like I didn't, I felt like I didn't um, know who I was representing and I wanted to get a sense of pride on, you know, representing Australia. Like I hadn't seen much of the country, you know, I didn't know much about our culture, um, our history as a nation. And so I started to look into volunteering in remote um, Indigenous communities. And I just Googled it and um, Mm -hmm. got sent out to a place called Butchu, which is two and a half hours west of Alice Springs. Um, And really, really loved the experience. Um, You know, learnt so much in that two weeks and left there, went back to my job in Sydney and then got a call up from council and said, hey, like, you know, that pool at Arihonga's got no workers. We're probably not going to open it. Do you want to come and work there? (laughs) And I had a really good thing in Sydney going at the time. I, I found my feet, got a really good job, had my own business, um, a lot of good things going on. And then, but but since doing that two week stint, I'd always thought, um, you know, I saw that there was a, a real lack of aquatic education and learned to swim lessons and kids who couldn't swim. And it just stuck in my head. And I thought, hang on, like, I've represented this country that represents, you know, our First Nations people who haven't got access to swimming lessons. Like, what is that? Like, I feel like such a loser representing this country and not helping people who were first here. And so that that thought kind of, I guess, always stuck in my head um, that, you know, I need to do something about this. Otherwise, you know, what have I represented my country for? like? And then I started looking into the research and, Found that kids are, you know, Aboriginal kids are three times more likely to drown than than non-Aboriginal kids, and um, yeah, forever stuck in my head. So when they came came at me with the job, I thought, what a great opportunity to to go in there and and learn and see if I can put something together. And um, so yeah, I went back, and it was purely just to to learn to start off with. Um, I think it's naive to create a program without understanding the culture and the community and how these kids learn and and what the way of life is. Um, So that was my idea with going back first and I lived there for six months, Um, finished up, learnt so, so much, but obviously, you know, six months isn't a very long time. But at the end of that, because the pools were seasonal, tour around Australia and um, during that time, um, yeah, ended up on a TV show after that. Um, To fill in a a bit of a gap.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was keen to get there. So let me just ask, so when you were volunteering, the initial two weeks, what were you actually doing in that time? Were you working at the pool?
1: Yeah, so I was brought in as what was with a non-for-profit called Red Dust, which basically Mm -hmm. um, is a healthy living program style non-for-profit. that does a a few other things as well. Uh, But I was brought in as an athlete mentor to basically run a swimming kind of school um cool. so yeah that's what I did came in designed a swimming carnival worked with the kids to create one and then um yeah did the first swimming carnival I think in a, in a very long time there so um yeah that's what I did
0: awesome okay so let's talk about The Bachelor <laughs> how did the, how did that come about like where in your story did you decide you know what Amongst everything going on, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on TV and I'm gonna try and find love.
1: Yeah, well, um, look, it, I was going around Australia at the time, and I had previously talked to to Brooke Blerton um, mm-hmm. on Instagram, although she didn't remember it when I went on the show. <laughs> um, I think I slid into her DMs one time, and um, yeah, pretty embarrassing uh, for me. But, um look,
0: we all do it. We all do it.
1: Yeah, actually got in touch, someone got in touch with me from the show and um, asked if if I'd want to do it. And um I was by like per-
0: coincidence? Uh, like that you had spoken to Brooke but then.
1: I, I don't know. I don't know that. Yeah, mm. I don't know the answer to that. Um but I had applied for Survivor um three, four years ago or something like that. And I think you're part of the same casting agency potentially and I think they got in contact with me. Um, I don't know through that. I actually don't know. I wasn't told. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, so I've an knowing about it for ages, and I'm horrible talking in front of a camera, and, and especially in TV. Like I'm terrible, and so that was my biggest concern of absolutely making a fool of myself. But I guess you know I. I was pretty keen on Brooke at the time um, and that was a bit of a motivator. But also, you know, I, I think I was realistic about it. You know, there's 20 contestants, you got a 5% chance of, of being the last one. So I took into consideration what else I wanted to get out of it and I thought it'd be a perfect opportunity to build an audience um, in the lead up to what I was trying to create with mm or at the time I was trying to create an Indigenous swimming program. So I thought if I can do this, get a bit of an audience and then try and just promote um, and, and educate that there is an issue out here, um, then, you know, that's that's another good thing out of it. And I'm also, you know, I also love taking every opportunity I can get uh, in life. So I feel like, you know, it was a putting myself into the deep end yeah, something I wasn't very good at, something that I was forced gonna have to force to be good at. Um, and um just yeah experience something totally wild and different.
0: <laughs> so did you know that it was gonna be Brooke going into it? And that's kind of I what did. um yeah, that probably would have made you feel a little bit more comfortable knowing that you knew this person.
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah, or definitely. you this person. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely made me feel more comfortable, um, although I was still shooting it um, a lot. What
0: was the experience like? Like what do you remember of it? Was um, it what you thought it would be?
1: I actually loved it. Um, there was times where I didn't like it, don't get me wrong, um, mm-hmm. but it was such a different world um, and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. You know, I think the, the biggest thing I struggled with was coming from a community of 150 people to having, you know, six cameras in your face at once, two metres away from you talking to a girl on a lounge. I hadn't had a date. I hadn't seen a girl in six months, but I was keen on. So it was like a lot, it was a lot to deal with. And like that whole, I, I really struggled with that because it was like just counter worlds that had been thrown into. Um, But the experience itself, you know, like getting to know people and, you know, everyone's thrown in the same environment so everyone's in the same boat and everyone's nervous, excited. Um, You know, you you know that this show's on primetime TV and, you know, you can't can't stuff up because you sign a contract that states that anything can be taken from what you say. So, um, you know, there's no second chances, but I kind of love, I like that thrill at the same time. Like it was, yeah, it was, I have no regrets. Um, I think it was. That's good. Yeah, it, I, and I think that's. And I think the reason why, sorry, I have no regrets, is because um, I knew what I signed up for, <laughs> and I think a lot of people who do have regrets don't know what they signed up for. Mm-hmm. Like I got, I got a bit, you know, of uh, mistreatment, I guess, in the show where um, my words got taken differently and, and spun. But yeah, at the time I was like, oh, that sucks. But then, you know, if you know what you signed up for, like, you know you signed for them to do that. So, like, I was like, you're an idiot. Like, of course they're going to do that. You said that they could.
0: (laughs) Were you ever worried, though, like, with the way that you were portrayed or did you feel like it wasn't accurate for who you are?
1: Um, Yeah, but you kind of know. um, You kind of know because the questions that they ask you and um, I feel like I am quite self-aware. So Mm -hmm. I kind of could see that they were trying to make me look like a bit of a, in their words, a bimbo or, like, a bit a bit of the you know, dumb kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was all right with it, and I kind of just played with it because I didn't think it was the worst edit, but um, I could kind of have fun with that. Like, I could kind of just mm-hmm. act dumb and just do silly things. And I knew I wasn't gonna, you know, I knew a few weeks, you know, I, was, I wasn't gonna get to the end, so um, I just kind of enjoyed the experience from there and 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 just played with it and knew what edit I was kind of gonna get and just just roll with it.
0: <laughs> and then how did the experience end for you? Like looking back, knowing that, you know, it didn't work out or, you know, she chose someone else or how does it, oh. like, I guess, does it make it worth it or do you wish that you weren't on that season?
1: No, no, no. I'm happy I was. I think, it, it, you know, it was a pretty groundbreaking season as well, um, mm. you know, being the first bisexual bachelorette. So I feel very proud to be a part of that and be a part of Brooke's journey on that Um but um yeah no no regrets at all um I look so, back and think that it was an experience I'll never forget and I'm, I'm only taking the good from it and you know I get a lot of people ask me these days you know I've had this producer reach out for me for this show should I do it and mm-hmm. I always say absolutely yes but just know what you sign up for like I had a great time I met some great friends um you know it took me out of my comfort zone it's opened up some doors for me it's um, I've got contacts and connections from it that are, are helping me to this day with with what I'm doing um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so yeah absolutely no absolutely no regrets
0: can we talk about dating in general off the back of that yeah so what happens you come off the show your DMs flooded like what's going on
1: <laughs> yeah it's pretty wild yeah um, <laughs> Uh, you get a lot of DMs, I suppose, but I mean, your socials are taken off you for the period of the show and then you get them back, um, a long time after. Um, so by the time you're posting, I think a lot of people are kind of off, off you all over you anyway and moved on and following the next reality TV show. But, um, yeah, like, you know, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't getting a lot of DMs. Um, I was, and you know, it was fun at the time. Um, I wasn't in Sydney, I think, very long for that period. I kind of got a job up at, um, in the Hunter region and, and um, going back out bush not too long up after that. So, um, yeah, I had a bit of fun with it and then, um, yeah, it was kind of fizzled out since.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, so what is it like dating when you live in a town of 100 people? Is it Does it <laughs> matter to you that you may not be able to go on dates and do that and meet people? I know you have a girlfriend now, but yeah. I'm just asking. Like at that time, um, was that something that worried you that you might not be able to f- meet someone?
1: Um, not really. Um, mm-hmm. like I, I suppose I don't know the way I, I operate. And I'm, you know, when I'm at a working place and and you know when I'm out bush, um, I'm very much focused on what I'm doing, and I, I see it as a you know very pr- privileged time that I get to um work really hard and put my head down and get on top of my own mental and, and physical health. And, um, you know, I feel like straight off the back of the show, I, I got almost got all of that out of my system and I was ready mm. to move on to the next thing. And going back out bush really helped me to have that reset and to, um, I, I don't know, I, I, I like structure and routine and um, there's no place better than out bush where you haven't got distractions to get distractions to get into that. So, um yeah, uh, didn't really. Yeah, didn't really um, bother me at all. Really, to be honest.
0: And then, how did you meet your current partner?
1: Yeah, so we actually went to high school. Um, her name's Nicolette. Nice. Um, so yeah, but we never talked. She was in the cool group, and I was in the slightly <laughs> nerdy group. Yeah, so she was too cool. She also had a long-term boyfriend at the time. So um, yeah, that's but, why. yeah, that's why. And, then, and our school was co-ed in Year Eleven and Twelve, so the girls come in then and didn't give us a long time to get to know. Um, mm-hmm. know the girls, but I mean, like I said as well, I'd gone through puberty pretty late, so I had a really squeaky, high pitched voice and I was skin and bone. So it wasn't very attractive. But um yeah, it, I mean, we met um through mutual friends. Um, and I was out through a mutual friend and he said that we should link up and I kind of talked about her for a little bit and had my eye on her for a while. And then yeah, we went on a date and it went really well. And um yeah, we dated for a period of time and then I went out actually not too long after that and went disappearing for five months and she she stuck with me and um yeah she's a very loyal kind-hearted girl that's um you know got great morals and ethics and beautiful caring girl so um yeah I'm very lucky to have her
0: that's really nice um what is it like doing long distance
1: Um, That time, I mean, I was only meant to go for a couple of months and I ended up stretching it out because I did that big long walk for um, the Remote Pools Project trying to raise money. And so I kept stretching it out and... It was stretching the relationship to a point where it was almost <laughs> going to end. Um, but, uh, like, I, I'm I'm the type of guy that's pretty sweet with long distance. Um, and I think it's because growing up, you know, I was very individual. Um, in the sport of me, it's a very individual sport. You know, I lived a very kind of lonely life that I didn't mind growing up. I went to uni. I worked two jobs. I trained. And it was all on my own back. So I'm so used to being on my own. And, and very mm-hmm. comfortable in my own skin, and, and, and I'm not insecure. I feel very secure. Um, so I, I, doing distance for me is fine. I, I feel mm-hmm. um, really comfortable with it, but for Nicolette, she's a little bit different. Um, so it was hard in our relationship because, yeah, she, she operates in a different way. So um, I know I, I needed to come back pretty quickly after that run. <laughs>
0: Yeah, let's talk about remote pools project. So, talk yep. me through the project and then also the the walk as well.
1: Yeah, so the, the project basically was founded as a means of keeping pools open. Basically, to, to keep it as simply put as possible, um, there is a, a trend at the moment where you know these pools in remote communities cost a lot of cost councils a lot of money. Uh, and they don't get any money from them. You know, pools are, are very expensive to run. You've got chemicals, you've got water, you've got work health, safety, you've got lifeguards, staffing issues, um, equipment. Um, the list goes on. Pool, plant, room equipment is is very expensive to operate and maintain. So the, pool, the Remote Pools Project basically was created to, to help councils fund these pools, um, to put it bluntly, and the reason why it is so important, you know, the, the councils and um, a lot of other people, they'll, they'll see pools as a luxury. But in actual fact, they're probably, in my experience, one of, if not the only proactive solution to fix a lot of current complex issues within remote communities. And I and I say that with, um, you know, based on my own experience, you um, and I've seen it and there's research that proves it. So it is is such an important um, project that we need to, like, the project's still very new, but mm-hmm. I think our main goal now and my main goal is to try and educate um, and advertise why these pools are so important, not just for a luxury to escape the heat, but... Um, say they improve short-term health um skin infections ear infections and eye infections that amongst some of the highest in the world in the world Mm. in these remote communities and they are families of other long-term diseases like rheumatic heart disease um, trachoma and i'm not a doctor so i apologize if i'm incorrect in some of the things i say here but the I guess the main point of what I'm trying to say is that a lot of these diseases, both short and long-term, are, are the highest in the world for a country that is is quite privileged. So there's that. There's um, obviously also provides a place for to escape the heat and be able to do physical activity when there's 47-degree days back-to-back. Back. It reduces criminal behaviour in, in these communities where, you know, some the only thing to do in these communities is go to the swimming pool. It provides a safe space. It also provides employment um, opportunities for locals, which you know is another, uh, I guess, workplace in workplaces is in these remote communities don't do this very well. And that's something that we do well. We have a pathway for locals to get certified and qualified to work at these pools and also to, to gain positions of power. So um, we're working at the moment on a volunteer impact strategy which will basically shows how we use our volunteers in a way that is empowering towards community. So I feel like a lot of non for non-for-profit, profits um, come into these communities, have these volunteers that come in and fly in, fly out without actually providing a pathway and upskilling locals to, to take over. Whereas what I'm really proud about what I do is this impact strategy of, okay, just having volunteers and bringing volunteers to provide a service isn't actually going to fix anything long-term. It's just going to put a Band-Aid solution over it. Mm. So what we want to try and do is use our volunteers to upskill local staff in lifeguarding and swim teaching um, to eventually take over. So we're going to have like a red light, yellow light, green light system where um, red light is, you know, this community is, you know, zero knowledge around aquatic the aquatic industry, both lifeguarding, or swim, what pull-ups, whatever it is. Yellow light is the halfway there to being fully functional and self stunning and then green light, yeah, okay, this community is good to go on its own. And and not many places, um, not many communities or, or non-profits going to communities have a have a system like that. So um, that's something that I'm really proud of. Um, and I guess my role in in this whole picture is just like I said to you before, is to facilitate facilitate the change. Um, I want my position to be overtaken by someone in these remote communities. But the reality is that it's going to take some time. Um, aquatic, you know, aquatic environments in these local communities are, are still much, much a very new concept. Um, mm. And um, for a long time now, it's always been people flying in other white people from big cities to run their mm. pools. Um, So to change that culture is going to take time and that's why I feel like I'm here because, you know, I've got the education and knowledge around our Western culture and our rules and laws around running aquatic facilities and all our decisions are made by remote communities um, and elders and people within remote communities. My job is just to tell them where the boundaries are and what we can and can't do. So, yeah, that's my role and that's a bit about remote pools. (laughs)
0: That's awesome. Do you find is the the goal for remote pools to kind of make their way around all different areas of Australia um, and kind of go into communities that don't have any pools or are you predominantly focused on communities that maybe have a pool but don't have the resources to fund it or to run it or the knowledge? um, What's kind of the priority?
1: Yeah, so at the moment um, we have a lot of pools knocking on our door because they've seen what we've done and and to come and help them. Mm. And I've had a lot of people come up and say to me, that they've had pools that have been closed for a long amount of time. Um, We've also had a lot of people telling us that their pools are very inconsistently open. Um, So at the moment, we're just trying to get more funding so that we can reach more pools that are struggling to stay consistently open. And I guess when we do that, that might take some time. Um,
0: because it, for mm. now, has it been completely run as a non-for-profit? There's no, like, government backing of this and no kind of
1: Yeah, so, uh, so at the uh, moment support? we're funded half by council and we're also funded mm-hmm. half by um, the YMCA. So it's a YMCA mm. initiative, I guess. And with with the idea at the moment with one of our councils here that gradually over the years their funding will, will reduce to zero while we hopefully mm. get more corporate sponsorship and, and bigger government grants um, to help operate these pools, uh, fully under the project. So, yeah.
0: What about the walk that you did? How was that part of it?
1: Yeah. The the walk I did is just a, just a a way of, of marketing what we're doing, a way to get out there, a way to get people talking. You know, I I enjoy a challenge as well. So I wanted to challenge myself and I'd done, I reckon 300 plus 400 drives, going up and down these West Mac ranges to where I was living out at, mm. at Arionga and the West Mac's a part of a, the Pinter Trail, I don't know if you've heard it, and it mm-hmm. it's, goes for 250-odd kilometres long. There's 12 sections. And I was dri- just drive up there every, you know, every week. I would drive once a week to town um, and I just thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if I could do that all in one go? But also mm. um, kind of lined up where... If the pool in Arianga wasn't funded and wasn't going to be able to be open, the next closest pool was was in town, which is 250 kilometres away. And for a lot of these people in uh, the remote community of which you you know, it's it's hard to build up the money when there's no work available to get a vehicle and to get a car. So I wanted to show that how far it really was for these people to get to the next closest pool and to have access to learn to swim, but also have access to a facility that. Is critical to their health, um, so yeah, that's why I came up with the idea. And um, yeah, it was you know I'm not a very good runner or walker. Uh, I was probably pretty naive, but I guess since swimming, I wanted a challenge and. I thought I could just do it. Like, I'm like, oh, walking's easy. Like, you just walk, put one foot in front of the other. But the Larapinta Trail is 7,000 metres in combined elevation. Um, so, but it's
0: hot. It's like <clears> such a hot climate.
1: Yeah, well, in winter it gets a little bit cooler. So I did it in May for that reason, tried to push out That's the good. real back end of summer. Um, but the nights are a little bit cooler, but the days are still fairly warm up around 30. But um, it's the elevation that killed, killed me and the loose. it's all loose rock. So when you're walking, mm. it's like... You're constantly stabilizing, You're using those little muscles in your knees to stabilize going up and down um, loose rock, and that's what that's what killed me. That was the end of me. I only got to 100k's in within 24 hours, and I literally I could not move. Um, and I just thought to myself at that point, I was like, "Do I keep going?" And like after watching Ned Brockman do what he did.
0: No, he's not normal. He has, like, superhuman, strange uh, mental capacity. Yeah.
1: I was thinking that. He's I was watching, I was following. I was like, how is this guy still going? I was like, I remember when I got here and I was literally, like, I was felt like my knees were going to snap. Um,
0: <laughs> and then he did that, like, 40 days in a row. It's yeah, actually unfathomable. It
1: is. It, it constantly blows my mind thinking about that. But, um mm. Anyway, yeah, I kind of got to that point and I was like, well, my job here is done. You know, I've raised $12,000. I had something like 300 people donate, which, you know, mm-hmm. I saw um, as a point of conversation. You know, it didn't really matter or did matter how much I was going to get. But what mattered more is that people were starting to talk about it.
0: Um, because
1: mm-hmm. I felt like swimming and, you know, swimming pools in remote community it's such a like people feel like oh it's just a swimming pool it's just a swimming pool but I really just want to try and get that message out there and um that was the main thing is to try and educate people on how critical these pools are to Mm. um you know fixing such complex issues in these remote communities like this is this is a proactive way forward um and that's one of the only things I've seen that that actually works.
0: We'll, um, we'll wrap up soon, but the last thing I'm interested to hear is, you know, what has your experience been like living within these communities and what have you learned? Um, you know, you've shared some awesome stuff on Instagram. I saw you're learning a language from, I think her name is Patricia. And then you wrote something that said, um, you know, listening to the locals, understanding and investing time and in getting to know them, taking the time to learn about their culture and their way of life, their families, you know, that's the way forward. Can you just reflect yeah. a little bit on on that?
1: Yeah, I suppose you know I'm still learning. Um, although I've been in and out communities coming on to five years now, um, I still constantly try and remind myself whenever I go in there. Hey, you don't know everything. Like you don't know how these people live. You don't know what these people have been through. You know, you don't know what these people go through every day. And I think that's really, really important because there is still so much to learn. And in terms of um, relationships and getting to know the people, it's a it's a huge. Uh, undervalued thing that non for profits and, and councils don't value. Like they don't value relationships and getting to know people. We, we as Westerners, we value different things to um, Indigenous people within remote communities. And, and uh, people just can't grasp that concept. Um, people can't understand that hey, why don't they want to save their money and buy a car or go overseas or buy themselves? something really nice. And it's because they value family, they value culture. Like they don't care about a car. Like they don't care about going overseas. They don't want to go overseas. They don't want to go to a different state. They don't care. And that's and that's perfectly fine. That's what that's what they value. Um, and you gotta respect it. Like we don't, you know, like we should be valuing as Westerners, we should be valuing our families more. We should, you know mm. we always everyone's always talking about that now. Um, you know, putting family first and, and things like that. So I think that's, that's the message I try and get out there every now and then is, is when you're trying to achieve something in these remote communities, you, you need to go and listen and understand and learn about language and learn about what they value and a lot of the people that, um, that I deal with, they, they value their family, they love telling you about their family and who's related to who and where they grew up and where they lived and stories about their place And um, from a lot of that, um, you can kind of get an idea of or I get an idea of what the right way is to run our aquatic centres within these remote communities. Mm -hmm. So when I employ staff, I make sure I employ both men and women because I learned about Ben's business that goes on. When Ben's mm-hmm. business goes on, you're going to lose all your male staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and you learn about families and, and who travels and who doesn't travel and you learn about when the right time to open the pool is and when the wrong time to open the pool is. You learn about um, the, the shifts, the hours of shifts that you should be running for, that make the local staff feel comfortable. You end up creating a real culturally sensitive workplace and that's what we've had this season and um, it's just thrived because of it because, you know, we've employed the right people who, you know, are a part of, you know, same or similar families and um, we've covered our asses when men's business is on with, with women and um, just by listening and understanding, you, you know, you can create a workplace that's, um, that's really beneficial.
0: On a personal level too, like how has living in remote communities changed you, do you think?
1: Uh, it's, it's changed me a lot in terms of, um, especially around valuing materialistic things. Um, when I first went into community, I had an 80 series land cruiser, which I loved. <laughs> um, it was old school, but it was re- really, really good condition. And I was like really proud of it because I've been looking for one for ages and, um, anyway this one time we'd gone and got some wood um, for a fire for sorry business and sorry business happens when someone passes away and um people can cut a lot of people can come to that community and and camp out for a long time and it was cooler nights so we're looking for some firewood um we stacked the 80 series with firewood scratching ceiling pulling the seats apart like tearing the seats. Like windows down, I had to drive back with the tailgate down, and we we're on dusty corrugated roads. So like, I'm in this car, it's full dust, like full dirt. I couldn't even see the odometer. Like, I, my, I took my shirt off when I come out of the car, and it looked like I still had a shirt on. It was that dusty. And I couldn't even <laughs> see, and I was like just driving, and I was like, I was so devastated. Like, I saved up this car for so long, and they're like, no, no, it'll be right, it'll be right. We're packed car, full of people, and. And that's when it really clicked for me and I was like, you're an idiot. Like, there are so many people here that just need to be kept warm at night and I'm worried about my car getting scratched. Like, at the end of the day, it's served its purpose. It's a vehicle that prevents us from walking a long distance. We can get uh, firewood really quick for people that need it. Who cares if you scratch it? Like, that's replaceable. These people from getting sick and then potentially dead after, um, you know, that's not replaceable um so do what's needed and and like stop whinging about like looking after things that what we you know i think you know going up in the western world and in sydney you constantly judge for what you have and what you haven't got whereas really the only thing you need is a, a loving family and a roof over your head and yeah it's taught me a lot about that like being appreciative of, of what i got and and value things that aren't replaceable as well as uh, appreciation for our culture as a nation, you know, learning so much about these people and where they come from and, and what they've been through and understanding that, you know, all the trauma that they've been through and, and how it still affects a lot of these people today. Um, so, yeah, everything and like I said, I'm still learning and still improving. So,
0: Do you think you'll ever move back to um, Sydney or elsewhere or does, does it kind of feel like home now?
1: It, it does kind of feel like home now, the the central desert. But, um, you know, I think I have a family too, um, you know, and I, I miss them and I think there'll come a time where I've got to go back to Sydney and look after my parents. But for right now, I'm fully invested in this. You know, I'm not going to stop until this thing takes off Australian wide and it's because I've seen the effects that it has and the lives that it's saved and, but, you know, the good that it does for these um, remote communities and I almost feel like I'm obligated to do that now. You know, these people trust me. I've got such good relationships. I've built such good friendships with these communities. I, I couldn't live with myself if I just said, okay, my time here is done. See you later. will move on to the next person. I'm just not built like that. I want to see something through and I want to see this, give this legs and I want to see it go successful Australian-wide and I'm not going to stop until I get there. So it might mean that I move back to Sydney and, and you know, visit more occasionally. Um, and I only say that because I've got the relationships now, you know, I've spent five years developing these relationships, but I think that's a little while off yet. You know, I think I'm a still a good two years here to really invest because I think to, to do a good job, you need to be on ground and you need to spend time getting to know people um, rather than coming here and thinking, you know, what's right. But yeah, learning's critical.
0: Thank you for sharing. Um, You've been amazing. I don't know why you think you're not good on camera or you're not great on podcasts. You've been incredible and you've spoken really well. I think there's a lot that people will take from this. But we have a bit of a closing tradition on the podcast. Everyone is asked the same question. I'm sure you might have heard this. Um, I
1: have heard. I was telling myself to mentally prepare myself for this question.
0: (laughs) Yes. So, Kurt, the question is, what is the meaning of life?
1: Um... Me on the spot now i was telling myself i was listening to your other podcasts and i was like i've got to come up with an answer otherwise i'm going to be stuck i'd say take every opportunity that you get and don't forget to to give back when you can in any means possible um i think the world would be a, a much better place if Anyone who's got a talent or skill can provide that to the less fortunate that hasn't got the money to be able to pay for someone to do that for them. So I think anyone, yeah, well, it's probably going a bit off topic with your question, but
0: no, go for it. Go to, for it. To,
1: to to take any opportunity, I think, because I've lived by that for a lot of my life. And and then to also give back in, in your talented field or, or with whatever you've you've been blessed with. Um, because I think then you get a full circle of life, and you know, for me, I'm I'm more proud now of representing Australia than I was when I represented them. Because I feel like I've contributed in a way that I've, I've used my skill to give back, and it's a an incredible feeling. But it's also, um, you know, you feel like you you feel like you've done a complete circle.
0: Mm, no, thank <laughs> um, you. That's an awesome fulfilling. answer. Yeah. That's awesome. Can you please tell our listeners where they can connect with the Remote Pools Project or your work or yourself or anywhere you want to kind of lead them to? um, Fire away.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, if you follow the Remote Pools Project Instagram page or Facebook page, whatever you're on, um, and you can find us online at remotepoolsproject.com.au. I guess the biggest thing what we need now is is funds, but also mm. just please spread the word. Um, if you know any corporate interest, um, please talk to them about us. Um, if you need information about what we do or just want a phone call about what we do, please get in contact with me. And also, we're looking for volunteers at the moment. So if you are a pretty experienced um, swim teacher or pool lifeguard, we need you to to help work alongside local staff and and help upskill, so we can eventually get these pools um, fully run by by locals. So, yeah, that's my closing note.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you making the time, and I've found this to be such an amazing conversation. So, thank you.
1: No, thank you so much for having uh, having me. Um, like I said, I've been a bit hesitant, but um, you know, thank you, you for giving it. me the the platform to advertise what we're doing because it's really hard to get to those platforms and um, you're the first one to do it. So thank you Can't so much. To share it. I share love what you do. No worries. And um, I keep listening. So thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Please let me know who you'd love to hear from next or if you have a story to share, I'd love to get in touch with you. You can connect directly with me on Instagram at lifechatspodcast, one word. And every review and share really does help so much in the early days of building a podcast. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it on social media or you can snap a pic of where you might be listening and jump onto Apple Podcasts and give us a review. I really do appreciate the support more than you know. Have a beautiful morning, afternoon or evening wherever you may be listening in the world. I'm Georgia May and this is Life Chats.